0: Let me ask you now to open up to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. We are beginning a verse-by-verse study of this book this morning. We're also beginning something bigger than that. If, if the Lord tarries and sustains us through... We will continue our pattern over the next several years of alternating between New Testament studies and Old Testament studies. And our Old Testament studies will be moving through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And despite what you may have heard, these are wonderful, Christ-centered, gospel-rich books. In Exodus, we're going to see the nation of Israel... Brought out of bondage in Egypt. We're going to see that nation constituted at Mount Sinai. And then we're going to travel with them through the ups and the downs of the wilderness adventure. We're going to see their failures. We're going to see their victories. We're going to see times of God's blessing and times of God's judgment. We're going to see God's marvelous grace. And Lord willing... We will persevere to the day when we get to watch Joshua, that forerunner of Christ, lead these sinful people across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. And so this message is really the beginning of quite a journey for us. But what is this journey going to be about? And what is God going to be teaching us? Well, again and again, we are going to see the sinfulness of men And the greatness of God. Indeed, what we're going to be observing in these books of the Bible is a fickle people and their ever-faithful God. Uh, The great thrust of all that we will see is that we should not put our trust in ourselves. We should not put our trust ultimately in other people. We should put our trust in God. He is worthy of our trust. Now here's what I would like to do with this introductory sermon. I want us to read the opening words of the book of Exodus, verses 1-7. through 7. But I'm not really going to preach on those words until next week. Now, what I want to do this morning is preach an introductory sermon that will help us to get greater benefit from this book of Exodus. And my prayer is that God will use this message to whet your appetite for what is to come. And my prayer is that He will excite us about His Word and about the treasures that we have within it. So let's begin by reading from Exodus 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I have, I believe, seven Uh, introductory points to make about the book of Exodus this morning that will help us get the most out of it. So here we go. Number one, Exodus is a portion of Scripture. Exodus is a book of the Bible. Now I am well aware that you already know this, and yet this is still the most important thing that I can say up front about this book the fact that Exodus is found within the pages of Holy Scripture means that this book carries with it divine authority. This is not a book to be put alongside Robinson Crusoe or Pride and Prejudice. This book is not coming to you simply from the mind and the effort of some other human being. Ultimately, this book is God speaking. In 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes these words to Timothy. He says, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul speaks of these sacred writings... And we know that he's speaking of Scripture because he says so in the very next verse. And he tells Timothy that these sacred writings are able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Dear church, what were the sacred writings, the Scriptures, that Timothy had at that time? These were the books of the Old Testament. Paul tells Timothy to continue holding on to all that he has heard and learned from the pages of the Old Testament. For he says that those writings are able to make people wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, the Old Testament, just as much as the New Testament, preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament books speak to us about putting our faith in God's appointed Messiah and not in ourselves. Now, Herman, where are you putting your trust this morning? This book is part of Scripture, and like all of Scripture, is going to point us to Christ. But then in the next two verses in 2 Timothy, Paul says all Scripture... All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. And since Exodus is part of Scripture, Exodus is one of those 66 books. Out of all the millions upon millions of books in the world, there are only 66 that are breathed out by God. And we must make a distinction between every other book in the world, no matter how good it is, and these 66 books of the Bible. These books alone have divine authority. These books alone are the standard by which your life will be judged on the last day. It is these 66 books that contain the words of life and every other book that's ever been written Is either good or bad based on how well it either affirms or denies what's in the pages of the Bible. Since Exodus is breathed out for us by God and given to us for our benefit, how we ought to treasure this book. How thankful we ought to be for this book. How attentive we ought to be during the expounding of this book. I hope that you will come to these services each week with a sense of eagerness, with a sense of expectation. The Bible is your training manual containing everything you need to live well in this world and to make it safely to the next. Week after week, I will be opening up a portion of this manual. We will be going to Exodus. And we will be explaining it and applying it to our lives. Yes, Exodus is an ancient book, but the God who appointed this book for you is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He wrote this book with all of His people in mind, in every generation. Exodus is a portion of Scripture. Number two, Exodus is part two of a five-part book. Exodus is part two of a five-part book. Yes, it is actually an exodus that the nation of Israel is truly formed. And yes, it is an exodus that the journey of Israel really begins. But Exodus is still part two. There was a prologue that came first. In fact, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these five books were typically kept together in ancient times on one scroll. Together, these five books made up one book, the book of the law. These five books made up what was called the Pentateuch, or sometimes called the book of Moses. In fact, though it makes English teachers everywhere wince to hear this, the very first word of the book of Exodus in Hebrew is the word and. And. Now, our English translations clean that up, but in Hebrew, the first word of the book is and, and that's because you're supposed to read Genesis first, and Exodus picks up right where Genesis left off. You read the last verse of Genesis, you take a breath, you move to the next part of the scroll, and you keep on reading. And it begins with the word and. Now, we spent several years studying the book of Genesis together. And so hopefully we're well prepared now to come into the book of Exodus. Uh, Next Sunday morning, we will focus on those very first words of Exodus and how they connect with the very last words of Genesis. So we'll see how the two books go together. But let me recommend that if you have not read the book of Genesis recently, this would be a great week to do that. Uh, Take six or seven chapters a day and you could read Genesis this week and it would put you in a good place to pick up as we go into the book of Exodus with verse one next week. Exodus is part two of a five-part book. Excuse me. Number three. Sorry. The title Exodus is significant. The title Exodus is significant. Significant. Now, in the Old Testament, the Hebrews did not know this book as Exodus. Uh, Instead, if you had been speaking with Samuel, or with David, or with Elijah, they would have referred to this book by its opening words. Here's how they knew this book. They called it, And These Are the Names. And These Are the Names. That was the title of this second book in ancient Israel. And these are the names. And it had that name because when you came to this book in the scroll, this was the first few words of the book in Hebrew. Now, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, the name that was given to it was no longer the first words of the book, and these are the names. Rather, it was given the name Exodus, which is a Greek word that means to depart or to exit. So everybody look with me at Exodus 19. Everybody look at Exodus 19. I want to show you how the book of Exodus got its name. You see, Exodus 19 in verse 1 is something of a hinge in the book of Exodus. Everything before verse 1 is about Israel being brought out of Egypt. Everything that comes after verse 1 is about what happens with Israel at Mount Sinai and the covenant that they make with God there. To put it another way, Exodus chapters 1 through 18 is about Israel being rescued from slavery, and Exodus 19 through 40 is about Israel becoming servants of Yahweh, the true God. In other words, Exodus 19, 1 is the hinge. It's the turning point of the whole story. Now look at what we read in Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon... After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And so you see both parts of the book in this one verse. The first part of the verse, reflecting the first part of the book, says that Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. That's chapters 1 through 18. The second part of the verse, reflecting the second half of Exodus, tells us that they came into the wilderness at Sinai. And that's where they'll be to the end of the book. Now, do you see those words translated, had gone out, in the ESV? Your translation may be a little different, but you should see words, had gone out. That is one word in Greek, and it's the word Exodus. This is how this book got its name, from this central verse. And this is the name that this book would have had when Jesus read it. In the first century in the Greek Septuagint. And so Jesus would have known this book also as Exodus in the Greek. Now, why is that name for this book significant? Exodus. Well, that word Exodus appears three times in the New Testament. Once in Hebrews eleven twenty two, it refers to the Exodus of Israel out of Egypt. But second is Luke 9, 31. And that is where this word is used of our Lord Jesus Christ. So enter this scene with me. You've got Peter, and you've got James, and you've got John, and they're going up the mountain with Jesus. And we're told that Jesus was praying on the mountain, and suddenly the appearance of His face was altered, and His clothes became dazzling white. And then Luke tells us, And behold, two men were talking with Him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, in the ESV it's departure, it's the Greek word, exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So have you ever wondered what Jesus and Moses and Elijah talked about when they were up there having this conversation during the transfiguration? Well, we're told that they talked together about Jesus' exodus that was going to happen in Jerusalem. Israel had an exodus. Jesus had an exodus. Jesus' exodus would be his death on the cross. Now, as if that wasn't significant enough, the word exodus is used one more time in the New Testament. And this time it's in 2 Peter 1.15, where Peter, who was at the Mount of Transfiguration, who heard Moses and Elijah and Jesus talk about Jesus' exodus, Peter now uses that word about his own approaching death. Peter says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, my exodus, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter's not talking about leaving one town and traveling to another town. He's speaking of his death. And he's speaking of his death as his exodus. He says that before his own exodus comes, he wants to do everything he can to make sure that the truths of God are carefully preserved and handed down to the next generation. He wants to make sure that the church of Christ can at all times recall what he learned from Christ himself before he goes. And then Peter says, he says this right before that, he says, I think it right as long as I am putting in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now, Herman, listen to me. The Exodus of Israel was this nation being taken out of bondage through a wilderness into the promised land. The Exodus of Israel included many trials and tribulations, and included many precious promises from God and many stern warnings from God, but God was faithful. And he brought his people through the wilderness into the land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus' exodus included passing through Gethsemane, through those unjust court trials where he was slandered and unjustly condemned. Jesus' exodus included going through mockery and humiliation and beatings, and it included him going through the cross. The cross was the Jordan River for Christ. But after the cross, Jesus was brought into glory. You and I are in the midst of an exodus. One day, I'm sorry, our day of departing this world is drawing nearer and nearer with every breath that we breathe. As Christians, we've been brought out of our bondage to sin. And we are now in that wilderness experience looking forward to the promised land ahead. We must pass through our cross, through our Jordan River, through our death, and then enter into to heaven. Based on the New Testament, we have good grounds to learn lessons from Israel's exodus and apply those lessons to our own lives. We are not simply spiritualized, spiritualizing When we take lessons from Israel and apply them to our own lives, the New Testament teaches us to see the exodus of Israel in this way. You too are on an exodus. And so the lessons that we learn from this book are going to apply directly to our lives right now. And so you see, the name of this book is significant. Number four. Number four. The events of exodus... Probably occurred in the mid 15th century BC. Okay, the events of Exodus probably occurred in the mid 15th century BC. So think 1,450 years before the coming of Jesus. Think 3,460 years before us today. So we're talking truly ancient history, but the book of Exodus is. History, and we need to be very clear about this, we are not going to be studying a fairy tale. We are not going to be studying a fictional story that somebody made up. I know that's what the liberal scholars say about this book. They call Exodus a constitution myth. They say that this is a story, a myth, that later Israelites came up with because they wanted to have a great story to tell about the founding of their nation. They argue that the book of Exodus is a wonderful tale, that it has no roots in history, no roots in fact, no roots in truth. It was concocted to help Israel, to help Israelites love their nation and to give kids a great story to hear about the founding of their country. Here's how the argument is usually put forward. To this day, we have no archaeological evidence that the events of the Exodus ever took place. We have no archaeological evidence of plagues in Egypt. We have no archaeological evidence of Egyptians being defeated at the Red Sea. We certainly have no archaeological evidence of 2 to 3 million Hebrews wandering in the Sinai wilderness for 40 years. And so if you were to ask a standard history professor at a major university... They would tell you that Exodus is a fantastic story, but that it's also an untrue story. How do we respond to that? Let me give you four responses, each a little more helpful than the next. The first is to note that the Nile Delta is a very wet region of the world, and it would take some truly unusual circumstances for any papyrus document recording the events of Exodus to survive. Uh, Much more likely to survive from that time period would be words etched into stone, but not papyri. Now let me ask you a question. What words do civilizations typically etch into stone? What do we etch into stone? What do we have monuments of? Our failures? Our great defeats as a country? Of course not. We, we etch into stone our, our victories and those things that go well for our nation. And so it should not surprise us that when archaeologists are digging in Egypt and they don't find papyri, but they find stone and they find words in stone, they find no mention of Egypt being defeated by Israel. Of course they're not going to find that. Why would Egypt carve that into stone? that's, that's not something that civilizations have done. Second we do have plenty of historic evidence that there were Semitic peoples who were slaves at various times in Egypt. And so there is some corroborating evidence there. And certainly, since these Semitic peoples were not always slaves in Egypt, there has to be some explanation for how these people came out of bondage. Third, the Egyptian scholars tell us that there is much in the book of Exodus that accurately reflects the Egyptian culture it purports to tell us about. You see, the skeptics believe that that Exodus was written many, many, many centuries after the time period that it claims to be about. In fact, the standard critical view is that Exodus was written a thousand years after the time period it supposedly records. A thousand years later. Let me ask you a question. If you had to write a story about what was happening in America a thousand years ago? Do you think you could do a good job about recording events as they actually were? If you had to write a story about what was happening in Britain or any part of this world a thousand years ago, how knowledgeable would we be able to to write about that? Even in our day and age, even in our sophisticated day, there would be so much that we do not know about what culture and life was really like a thousand years ago yet Egyptologists tell us that the Egypt described in Exodus seems to match what we know about the Egypt of the late bronze age. In other words, it seems much more likely that somebody that was a contemporary, someone living during that time, actually wrote this book. Um, I could point you to the work of men like John Currid or Kenneth Kitchen, and they point to salt-tolerant reeds, they point to the water flowing from rock, they point to the habits of quails, they point to the mud flats of the desert, and they show again and again that these aspects of the book of Exodus all argue for an author who knew the, the Egypt of 1450 B.C. And it is very unlikely that someone living a thousand years later could have known what this author knew about that period in ancient Egypt. Uh, Kenneth Kitchen goes on to say, We know that exoduses, like the one described in the Bible, did indeed happen in the second millennium B.C. We have references to Israel, Edom, Moab, all found in Egyptian sources before 1200 B.C., The tabernacle, which we're going to see built at the end of the book of Exodus, is going to reflect not only Israelite culture, but Egyptian technology, which would have been strange had these people not been in Egypt. The content and the shape of the covenant that God makes with Israel at Mount Sinai seems to fit with the kind of covenants that were being made in places like Egypt in the second millennium B.C. And certainly it seems unlikely that a group of slaves who had spent their lives making bricks, would have been able to put together such a great covenant as the one we find in Exodus. It certainly requires somebody with a good education to be able to do that. And lo and behold, we have a guy in this book named Moses who received the best education uh, available at his time. And so put simply, if we're objective, if we look at this without an agenda... The evidence is clearly in favor of the historical reliability of the Exodus. What we're reading about in this book actually happened. And our fourth response is our main response. Because even if all the evidence we had seemed to show the contrary of what we read in these pages, we're still obligated to trust the Scriptures. If the Scriptures are the Word of God and we have the Spirit's witness that they are, then we must believe what the Word of God says no matter what. For at the end of all things we will see that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord stands forever. And so we can have confidence these events really took place. Now, when did they occur in history? There were two real possibilities, but I think most likely mid-15th century B.C. Um, The book of Exodus. If the book of Exodus had told us the name of the Pharaoh, it would have helped tremendously. Right? There's two pharaohs in Exodus. There's the pharaoh when Moses is born, and then there's the pharaoh of the time of the plagues. If If Exodus had given either one of those names, we would know with much more accuracy when this took place. But Exodus doesn't give us any of the Pharaoh's names. In fact, the title Pharaoh was just that, a title. It literally meant big house. That's what the word Pharaoh means, big house. And it was used as, as a title for the king of the land. It was used kind of like we use the word White House. right? If, um, if you turn on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC... And they say, well, the White House said today, do they mean that the building spoke? No. They used the title White House to refer to the current president and his administration. Well, that's exactly the way the word Pharaoh was used in ancient Egypt. It was a title that referred to the the king and his office and all of those who worked under him. Uh, uh, This came down from the Pharaoh today. Uh, The Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. And perhaps the reason that God doesn't give us the names of the individual pharaohs involved in the book of Exodus is because the point God was making is not simply that he was more powerful than just this one man. He was showing that he was more powerful than the very office of Pharaoh, the very deity that that office stood for. Now, to make a long story short, 1 Kings 6.1 tells us that it was 480 years from the time Israel came out of Egypt to the day Solomon started building the temple. If you take that, you put it alongside some other passages, Judges eleven twenty six, 26 Acts 13-19-20. Any of you that are interested, I can give these to you later. We basically come down to a date in the mid-1400s. In the old Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, as well as in the new Exodus movie coming out in December, um, Pharaoh... Is Pharaoh Ramses? Uh, Moses goes goes up against Pharaoh Ramses. That is almost certainly not correct. I know you're shocked that Hollywood got it wrong, but I think they might have gotten this one wrong. Um, it was almost certainly not Pharaoh Ramses. Um, I am not an Egyptian scholar, but just looking at the evidence, I think the most likely candidate uh, for the Pharaoh that Moses goes up against is Pharaoh Thutmose the Third. So everybody say Thutmose the Third. Um, there are several reasons why I think and we won't have time to talk about that today. Maybe in a later sermon we'll talk about why I think he is the one. Um, this means Thutmose II would have been the, the Pharaoh when Moses was a baby. Thutmose third during the plagues and the Red Sea. By the way, uh, they weren't always called Thutmose. They were called another name, Thutmoses. Thutmose II and Thutmose III, which gives some uh, interesting reasons why the daughter of Pharaoh might have given Moses the name that she gave him when she drew him up out of the water. Let me also mention that if you visit the Royal Mummies Hall in Cairo, or much likely, uh, more likely, if you just go to Google and you type in Pharaoh Thutmose III, uh, you can see his unwrapped, mummified head, and so you can kind of see uh, Thutmose III. Um, what we read about here in Exodus is likely about a hundred years into the new kingdom of Egypt, a little more than a hundred years before King Tut would reign. So when we think about Egypt, most people just know King Tut. Well, think this, about a hundred years before King Tut is when we think the, ex- the events of the Exodus took place. All right, much more quickly, the last three points. Number five, Moses is the primary author of Exodus. Moses is the primary author of Exodus. The evidence that Moses wrote Exodus is pervasive and persuasive. Uh, We have passages in Exodus in which the author tells us that Moses was writing down things that God commanded him to write down. Exodus 17, 14 says, "...then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua." Exodus thirty four twenty seven And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and Israel. In the later books of the Bible, we find this five-part book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We have this referred to as the book of Moses. And most importantly, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus time and again quotes from these Old Testament books and says, Moses said... Which, if the Lord Jesus says that Moses said to them, he has more knowledge on this than any of us. And so we certainly trust that Moses is the author of uh, Exodus. Now Moses does write of himself in the third person. He doesn't say, and then I did this, and I did that. No, he says, and Moses did this, and Moses did that. Don't let that throw you. That's not that unusual. I've been reading the last couple of weeks a book by William Bradford where he tells the story of the pilgrims coming on the Mayflower. Well, William Bradford was one of the pilgrims that came on the Mayflower, but he always refers to himself in the book in the third person. He'll say, and then William Bradford did this, and William Bradford did that. It's because he's trying to tell the story from an objective perspective. And so don't let it throw you that Moses refers to himself in the third person. He is the primary human author of the book. Number six. Number six. The original audience of Exodus was the second generation of Israelites in the wilderness. So who was Moses writing this stuff down for? Well, who needed to know the story of how God brought Israel out of Egypt? Who needed to know the terms of the covenant that God made with His people at Mount Sinai? It seems most likely that he was writing for that second generation of Israelites wandering in the wilderness. The first generation was the generation that experienced these things. They, they crossed through the Red Sea. They were there at Mount Sinai and heard the booming voice of God. But they were also a hard-hearted and stubborn people. And so Moses is writing for their children. He's writing for the generation that Joshua is going to actually lead into the promised land and set up the kingdom of Israel. Moses wants Israel to know from that generation on how God came to be her God. The mighty works that God did for Israel and the commandments that God gave to Israel. And finally, number seven, and we're going to end where we began. Exodus is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Exodus is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Every part of it is about Jesus. If we study any passage in the book of Exodus and we don't see how it relates to Jesus, we have missed the point. You remember how Jesus spoke with the men on the road to Emmaus and He showed them from all the Scriptures how the Messiah was to come and was to die. Jesus teaches us there that all of the Scriptures point to Him and the Gospel. But I want to close this message this morning by pointing you to the words of Paul. Look with me real quickly at 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to let Paul have the last word this morning. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because here Paul is speaking specifically about the Exodus. And he tells us in no uncertain terms why this story of Israel coming out of Egypt and making their way to the Promised Land has been written down. Let's begin reading in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1 and just let what Paul says fall on you. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul tells us explicitly there that Exodus is all about Christ. Christ was the rock, Paul says, from which the people drank. Christ was the one, Paul says, who was being put to the test by the evil deeds of Israel. And then he tells us why the story of Exodus was written down. He says it was for our instruction. These things happened as an example for us. Think about that, church. These were real people who lived and died and had their experiences for our sakes. Their lives were sovereignly worked by God to help us today. And therefore, we should be all the more earnest to learn the lessons of Exodus. This book was written for us Let us pray that we will have hearts to receive its message. Let us pray that God will do many mighty things among us as we study it together. And we will begin with verse 1 next week. Let me pray for us.